Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And it's a pleasure to be back with you for episode 77, another bumper episode. I'm going to be demonstrating shortly a way to navigate this podcast if you have a podcast client that supports the podcast chapters feature. We'll look at a story or two that's been making news in the blind community and there's been an influx of emails, so we'll take a look at an email or two that's come into the mailbox at theblindsideadmosin.org. There's a blind guy in the UK who's done something that I think is pretty cool. He's put a camera on his guide dog's harness and when he goes out and he gets hassled, if the dog gets deliberately jostled, he uploads the video and he lets people know that he's experiencing these issues. So we'll talk to Amit Patel about how he got into this practice and the effect, if any, that it's having when he posts these videos to social media. And then you and I are off once again to New Zealand's Parliament and we're going to meet Chloe Swarbrick. She is the youngest member of Parliament that New Zealand has elected in over 40 years. She's 23 years of age. She's a dynamic and very capable politician. And she recently has taken over a bill from Mojo Mathers, who is no longer an MP. And you will remember, we spoke with her on the blind side during our election series. This bill seeks to make it easier for disabled people to run for office and participate in the democratic process. We'll talk about the intent of this bill, whether it's enough, and whether it's likely to become law in New Zealand now that it has been drawn from the private member's ballot, which guarantees that it will be debated in New Zealand's parliament soon. First of all, let's talk about some kind of admin things related to the podcast, but hopefully it will assist you in skipping around this podcast, because much as I would love to think that you will sit here listening spellbound to every interview, every little editorial that we bring you here on The Blind Side, I know that there are so many podcasts that you want to get through and you want to listen to, and some things will be more interesting to you than others, so you will want to skip forward and back. You can, of course, skip forward and back by increments in all podcast apps. You could skip forward 30 seconds or a minute. And sometimes, depending on the podcast app that you have, it is settable. Blind people, though, are used to navigating around audio thanks to technologies like Daisy, right? We're used to skipping forward and back by various sections. There is a way to do this in podcasts, and it's not widely used, probably because it just takes a little bit of extra production to mark up the sections. But I think that of any audience, blind people who are seasoned audio navigation users would really appreciate this feature. So I've been mentioning this on the Blindside email community that you're very welcome to be a part of. You can send a blank message to the Blindside plus subscribe at groups.io and get on there the blind side plus subscribe at groups.io. And I mentioned there the possibility of introducing podcast chapter marks to the blind side podcast. And there was a bit of debate about this, whether it would be useful or not. And last week in episode 76, I put the chapter marks in to show our listeners on the blind side email community what it's like so they could actually experience navigating it. I've had some very positive feedback on and off that group about the integration of podcast chapters, and so it is something I intend to keep. First, let's talk about who can use podcast chapters before we look at how they work. At the moment, podcast chapters are supported in a wide range of podcast apps for smartphones, iOS and Android. 
I've been told that Podcast Addict on Android is working very well with the podcast chapters. I use Overcast on iOS. Downcast also works really well. Apple Podcasts, the official iOS podcast app, is supposed to support podcast chapters, but I've had some issues with it. I've had a lot of issues with the Apple Podcast app since iOS 11 came out, and there's been a lot of feedback on podcast communities that I frequent that really that app needs to uh, get some work done to it uh, post iOS 11. So I would highly recommend an alternative. My personal favorite is Overcast for iOS, and I'll give you some specific reasons for that. Some people I know love to speed up their podcasts because they're used to listening to audio at fast speed from years of talking book listening. I will do that if I'm listening to a podcast where somebody is reading an article, but I do find, for me personally, it detracts from my enjoyment of listening to an interview, which I like to hear at natural speed. Overcast has a really cool feature called Smart Speed, and what it does is just gently compresses the gaps between sentences. Or maybe somebody's using an internet technology where they're interviewing someone, where there's a little bit of a gap between when the interviewer finishes asking a question and when the interviewee answers the question. In that case, that gap will be compressed too. It's quite subtle, but it does save you a lot of time if you use it often enough. So I like Overcast for that. They also add some dynamic audio compression to the podcast optionally. We do that here ourselves because we take some pride in the audio production. So I switch that feature off for the blind side. Not that I often listen to the blind side because I know what's on it, but I would switch it off for the blind side because we um, it, it would sound over compressed. You can do that on a podcast by podcast basis. So it's very well implemented. It's also very accessible. And the developer of Overcast has a good reputation in terms of developing accessible applications. Downcast is also another excellent third-party option. So you're not spoiled for choice in terms of accessible options on iOS for working with podcasts. I have Overcast on the screen now in the last Blindside episode, and I'm just going to show you how this works. So I'll go to the top of the screen. All podcasts, back button. And flick to the right. The Blindside podcast with Jonathan Mosen heading. Jonathan Mosen. Selected. Unplayed. Button. All. Settings. Button. 76. New Mexico students talk with the space station. New Zealand census problems and reflections on the power of self-advocacy in the digital age. The 7th of March. 55 minutes. And that's the last podcast before this one. So let's flick down. Delete. And flick down once more. Play. There's the play button. I'll double tap. Back Welcome button. to the blind side. News and information from a blind... And I have paused it now with a two-finger double tap. Now that we're in the now playing screen in Overcast, let's explore it. The Blind Side Podcast with Jonathan Mosen. Share button. Zero minutes, five seconds of 50 progress. Three percent. Previous chapter. Dimmed button. This is something you won't see in many podcasts, but now you will see it in The Blind Side. The previous chapter button is currently dimmed because we're at the beginning of the podcast and there is no previous chapter. I'll flick to the right. Introduction and summary of episode. That tells me the current chapter that I'm listening to. If I flick to the right. Next chapter button. There's the next chapter and I can double tap. Next chapter. 
And I'm at the next chapter. I can resume playback now with a two-finger double tap. Of course, you don't have to perform a two-finger double tap to pause playback. I'm just doing that because it helps me to tell you what I'm doing without two of myself talking at once. What a truly scary prospect that is. So now I'll perform a two-finger double tap. And now, stories making news in the blind community on the blind side. So what that did was just by double tapping the next chapter button, it has skipped forward past all the blurb at the beginning and taken you to the first section on stories making news in the blind community. And if I flick left, beeping Easter egg hunt in Corpus Christi, it tells me that I'm going to learn about the beeping Easter egg hunt in Corpus Christi. Now, if I flick right, next chapter button, I can double tap the next chapter button next chapter and if i want to check where i am before i even resume playback i can flick to the left mcdonald's sued for inaccessible drive throughs mcdonald's sued for inaccessible drive throughs i'll perform a two-finger double tap now would you like fries with that lawsuit mcdonald's is facing another so you can see what this does i don't think i need to demonstrate it anymore we've marked up all the different sections of the podcast carefully here so you can quickly skip between the things that you want so if I start to play and I decide that I don't want to hear about this McDonald's story, the federal class action complaint. Next chapter. Button. Next chapter. And in other news, Microsoft has released another blindness. We jumped right past that McDonald's story. There was no need to wonder how long the story is or once we get to interviews, how long the interview is. You just double tap that next chapter button. Now, I know a lot of people are going to bombard me with this question if I don't address it now. Is this available in the Victor Reader stream? No, it is not. I did write to Humanware and I indicated that we would be implementing podcast chapters and I I thought that it would be useful. I don't own a stream myself, but for those who do use one, I figured that since this is a blindness specific product and a lot of blind people do like to navigate around audio in this way, it would be a welcome addition. I haven't had a reply to that email, so I don't know whether this is something that is being considered or not. In the meantime, if you want to take advantage of this really cool feature, then you can use any number of apps for your smartphone to play the podcast. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. Quite a bit of email this week. Always appreciate that. Blake Haley, good to hear from you, Blake. And he refers to the interview we did with Emma Benison towards the end of last year, where we talked about the airline issues that she was facing when she was just trying to get home to her children after a busy weekend of business. And she was flying with Virgin Australia and they just sort of left her there in the frequent flyer lounge. Blake mentioned Emma's comments on travel anxiety and was grateful that Emma raised this. And I think it is important when people in a leadership role choose to be a little bit vulnerable, you know, and that they don't pretend that blindness is somehow this walk in the park for everybody all the time. And Emma was quite upfront on the podcast and said that she does experience some travel anxiety And Blake Haley thanks Emma for that. He says he experiences the same sort of thing himself. And he has had some difficulty in the past articulating that and also perhaps having the courage to articulate it because he was worried about the reaction of other blind people saying that maybe he would be accused of being not a good enough traveler or just not a good enough blind person in general. 
So it sounds like Emma's done some good by talking about that travel anxiety issue and given Blake some confidence that he's not the only one. Good to hear from you, Blake, and glad also that you are a part of the Blindside online community. Marinella Ortiz in Orlando, Florida. Thank you for being in touch. Marinella says that she was in Orlando. She's from Orlando, and of course the Pulse nightclub shooting affected everybody there. She's been talking about security in the context of gun control. This is really in response to the editorial piece that I did a couple of episodes ago on the American gun control issue. And Marinella expresses some concern that security was inadequate at the high school at which the most recent shooting that prompted that comment occurred. I guess so, Marinella, but I I still come back to my original point in that editorial that it's a shame that security in schools is necessary. It's something that we certainly are not used to in this country because of the different approach to guns. And when you look at the common denominator, people can talk about violent video games and things all they want, but the variable is guns. Good to hear from you, and nice to know you're taking an interest in the podcast and that you are listening. I note, by the way, that there have been a number of stories in the media, because I scan media for blindness-related stories on a weekly basis, about the issue that blind people in Iowa are able to get firearms and able to get gun permits. So that's just a fascinating story to me. And again, it's one of those things that's probably just beyond the realms of comprehension for people listening to this podcast outside the United States. And the other question, of course, is, I mean, how to to what extent is the genie out of the bottle? It's such a difficult situation there. Hello from InVision in Wichita. This is Mike May talking. Now, Wichita, for those who don't know it, is in Kansas. You may have heard of it because Glenn Campbell wrote a song about it. I guess he was inspired enough to write a song. I'm not sure if he actually wrote it. He certainly sang it. Wichita Lineman. Good Glenn Campbell song that. Anyway, here's Mike May who says... I was listening to your podcast about Soundscape last night. Good stuff. This is such a reminder of the good old ACB radio days. Love your stuff. Thank you, Mike. Just goes to show we are both getting old, if we remember that far back, eh? I spent some time, he says, with Microsoft on the app. For free, you can't beat it. I don't think it is a replacement for other accessible navigation apps, that are much more mature. It is just another tool in our very full toolbox. See my comments sent to my friend Amos at Microsoft. Like you said, the value in the app is having headphones and the aftershocks are the only ones that don't cover your ears. I think there are some other bone conducting options, aren't there? It's not something I'm able to make use of, so I haven't checked, but I think there's a range of bone conducting options out there. Maybe people who are using other Brands of bone conduction headphones can chime in on that. Having sound next to your ears, even if they aren't covered, can still interfere with safety. So it seems the best value is when you are not moving or in a car. Regarding your love of space, says Mike. Oh, (laughs) do I get to do this again? Hang on. Regarding your love of space. (laughs) Robert Curson who wrote Crashing Through About Me, is releasing his book called Rocket Man. Oh, is it about North Korea? This is on April the 3rd. It is about the Apollo 8... Okay, so it's not. It's about about the Apollo 8 mission, says Mike. 
If you happen to be in the States, they are having a book launch, so to speak, including talks by the three astronauts in Chicago at the Science Museum. I am sure Robert would be happy to talk to you about the book if you can't attend. Hope things are well. Thank you, Mike. I will follow up on that because we would like to talk some more. I would like to talk some more about space. Yeah, boys and their toys. I promise I'll stop doing it now. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. You remember we mentioned back in January this outrageous decision that was made by the Nepalese government regarding Mount Everest. We know, of course, that there are blind people who have climbed Mount Everest. Eric Weinmayer, of course, was the first person to do it. I think there may have been at least one other person who has done it subsequently. So the idea that you should just ban people point blank because they're blind, or for that matter, are a double amputee, when you have had double amputees and blind people already getting up the mountain, is outrageous discrimination. I'm pleased to say this cause has gone all the way to the Supreme Court of Nepal. And the advocates who have taken this case, which is being heard by the full bench of the Nepalese Supreme Court, have said not only does it violate the Nepalese constitution, but of course it's also a blatant breach of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Well, it seems like the Supreme Court is somewhat sympathetic because they have issued a stay of the government's ban and they have said, government, you've got 15 days to justify why you were doing this apparently unconstitutional act. It'll be interesting to see whether the government does justify it or attempt to justify it or whether it just backs down, which would be the appropriate thing to do, I would suggest at this point. Our place, our issues, The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. One of the problems that blind people have who are guide dog handlers is that people like to talk to the dog. They get distracted by the dog or they think that the dog is more important and uh, people say they're an icebreaker as well. There is a reverse problem, though, and that is that some people are just rude to guide dog handlers. Recently, I came across a fascinating article about Dr. Amit Patel, who has been documenting, chronicling his issues with rude people and guide dogs. And I thought it would be great to talk with him. So welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Can I just go into a bit of background first? You're fairly recently blinded, right? And it sounds like you have really been through the mill in that regard with multiple cornea transplants that didn't take. It must have been a terrible experience, really, over a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think going back, it must be about 10 years ago, 10, 12, 10 11 years ago when I had my first cornea transplant. Um, and it just kept rejecting after rejection after rejection. So every nine to 12 months would have to have to redo it but then it just gets to a point where you know the body just can't take anymore and it was left and luckily at that time my my final cornea grafts were actually pretty good I actually went and had stem cell surgery out in the states um, and everything looked fantastic and it was only just one morning I woke up a little bit of pain in the eyes um, and then 36 hours later I lost my sight and you were a doctor of medicine yes a trauma medicine so emergency medicine is what I specialized in. Uh, so busy, uh, hectic. I looked after myself. Um, I had regular eye checkups. Uh, and yeah, just uh, completely out of the blue. 
One of the things that I have found whenever I visit a doctor, well, not always, but but on occasion when I visit a, a medical professional about something that is not blindness related because I've been blind all my life, so there's really nothing to fix or anything like that, is that a lot of the medical profession really see anybody with a disability as a medical problem, even though they may not be visiting for anything relating to a disability. And I wonder if, as someone who has a medical background, you've become more conscious of that now, that there seems to me a paucity of training of the medical profession in terms of just how to engage with people with disabilities. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's difficult when, uh, when when going to the hospital, visiting the doctors. It's um, I, I think even, even though they know I'm severely sight impaired, I have no useful vision, they will still just yell out your name and expect you to find them. Yes. It's, um, it's, it's something that I've been working very closely with, with guide dogs, and we actually go into eye clinics and actually train the clinicians and the staff and the reception on how to actually deal and interact with blind um, and visually impaired people. So we're slowly, even because my background is medicine, so I kind of know the way, the way they're thinking, um, but also being blind myself, I can actually give them the feedback and actually give them the training on how to deal with visually impaired people. Yeah, I don't often have to go to the doctor. and I'm not one of those people who sort of goes at the drop of a hat. And so if I visit my GP, I'm feeling pretty poorly. And to have to cope yeah. with a whole bunch of questions relating to how am I blind and all the sort of thing that has nothing oh, yeah. to do with why I'm there. Um, is, I know, I know. Really frustrating. But it, so you eventually became a guide dog handler, and it sounds like that's really been quite a thing for you, that, that, that it's a very special partnership you're enjoying there. Absolutely. It's about uh, just just over two and a half years ago, I was I was matched to Kika. Um, but the whole process with the guide dog is that the dog is actually matched to the recipient. So depending on how active my lifestyle is, depending on what I need the dog for, um, that's how, how it's matched. And um, I, we were told right at the beginning, um, it could take up to two and a half years to be matched to a, to a dog. Um, but we got a call six weeks later because Kika came out of the system. Um, all the dog handlers thought, you know, she's absolutely perfect for Amit. Uh, she came around, uh, had an introduction, and within a week we were we were doing our training together. And she has completely changed my life. In what way? Well, she's given me my independence back and my confidence. Um, using, I, I used a white cane in London for a few years. I've had some bad incidences. I've had um, someone snatch a white cane out of my hand uh, because I've accidentally tapped their shoe. Um, I've had someone throw it on the train tracks. I've had people push me over and push a buggy over my back to get onto a bus. Um, and all of that kind of takes a bit of that confidence away from me every time I walk out of the house. Um, and, but with Kika, I, I always have that confidence. I always know I'm going to be safe. You know, I might get pushed around, get barged around. But um, with Kika, at least I know I'm going to make it home safely. And you have become quite a social media celebrity through documenting your adventures with a, with a camera that is mounted on the harness. Why did you start doing that? There must have been some, some, some events that led up to that. There was. There. So we, we commute into London every morning at rush hour 
And what we were, what I was finding is Kika would stop halfway through her journeys and and go into a corner. And I always assumed that it was because maybe the environment was too busy or there wasn't a safe pl- uh, route. Um, it was only until some other commuters told me your dog has just been hit by someone or been pushed or been knocked over with an umbrella. You know, it's it's that kind of environment where I thought this really can't be happening. So me and my wife just decided one day we'll put a camera on her and actually see what Kika sees. Um, and it's only when we actually reviewed the footage, we actually noticed that people would barge her out the way, would would intentionally knock her with their bags just to slow her down, just to get in front of her. Um, and you know what? Well, that's that's really not acceptable. So we started just documenting, just just putting up on Twitter on on our on our normal daily commutes, and even and even even records. You know the comments we get as well. You know people people saying that blind people shouldn't be travelling at peak time because we're it, you know we'll put everybody else in danger. Um, guide dogs shouldn't be uh, you know they shouldn't be trained as guide dogs because they just. That's not something they do naturally. Um, it's just just the just the, the vile comments sometimes. Yes, my my wife has actually been. She's a guide dog handler, and she's been accosted by some random person who was ranting on about the dog and how it wasn't properly treated and all sorts of crazy things like that. And I mean, she worked for the for the Seeing Eye in the US. So it's a, okay. she, she's an incredible guide dog handler. When you first talked about the umbrella incident. I kind of thought, well, it is a crowded environment, right? I mean, I've been on the tube in London, for example, and it's bedlam, man. I mean, it's it's, yes. it's frantic and it's crazy. But you're saying this stuff is actually deliberately happening. People are effectively abusing your dog. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, expe- I expect, you know, a little bit of knocking around, you know, when we're, when we're trying to get on and off the tube. That That's completely acceptable, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the parcel, but it's, it's when it's intentional, you know, when someone actually looks at me, gives, you know, and then will swipe their umbrella to move Kika out the way, or they'll get their wheelie bags and push, you know, intentionally into Kika just to slow her down. And this is all whilst looking at the dog, but they don't realise that they're actually looking at the camera as well. <laughs> the article that I read about you that prompted me to get in touch with you talked about one issue where you were on an escalator and somebody was determined to barge through. Yes. Yeah. So we, we, we get that a lot. So Kik, so in, in the UK, only 5% of guide dogs are actually escalator trained. Um, and I'm very fortunate that Kika is. So she will approach the escalator, wait for the command to jump on, and she will just jump on and she will stand on the left-hand side and not move. And I am, I'm, I'm completely blind. So I will hold on to that rail with dear life. Um, and you get a lot of people who will say, excuse me, excuse me. And then I just have to normally turn around and just say, look, she's a guide dog. You know, she's not going to move. And that's that's the end of it. But you do get some commuters who will say, well, just move your arm out of the way. Let me walk past. And it's and it's scary when they actually grab you as well. And this is, I don't think people realize that it it's my, you know, it it's so close for me to thinking I'm going to fall right there and then, you know, it's, um, it's a scary thing. It really is scary, but I don't think people understand that. I don't don't think they just quite grasp how scary, um, being on an escalator for a visually impaired person is, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it happens to maybe three times a week. 
people may not appreciate that if you are in a public place, in most countries anyway, and I presume the UK is also the same, that it is actually legal to film or, or photograph anyone if they're in public, right? Yes. So you've got no problem there. Have you no. ever been contacted by somebody who's seen themselves on the videos that you publish and apologized or anything like that? I haven't. But most most of the time I get I, I get most of the time you kinda of hear 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 people trying to barge in, barge themselves, you know, in front of me. Um but you but a lot but the funny thing is a lot of people actually notice the camera on the dog before they notice the guide dog, which is crazy. Um, they will they will comment on oh your dog is wearing a camera and what kind of dog is it and you have to explain it's a guide dog even though it's branded with guide dogs all over it they they will notice the two inch camera sitting on the top of the harness. Does it bother them or what, why do they mention it? I, I think it's just they don't normally see it. It's, it's not, you know they they walk around London you you know you see guide dog owners but you don't see a camera mounted on the guide dog and it's and it's not too obvious you know because I'm I'm very cautious that you know it's it's quite an expensive bit of equipment you can you can you can literally walk past and grab it if you wanted to if if someone if someone wanted to so I'm very cautious on when I put the camera on her and where you know where I am um, and how busy the environment is as well so it's not on her all the time. I'm a computer geek, okay, so I've got to tease this out. How does the camera work? So it's it's strapped to her harness. Is it then sending audio by Bluetooth back to a smartphone, or, or does it is it all nope, standalone? It, it's all standalone, so it will hold the the video footage on the actual SD card, the micro SD card in the in the camera itself, and then all I do is come home, plug it into the laptop, and it will just download, and my wife will just review the footage. So sometimes I can I can normally I normally can tell when there's been an incident um, and I, I can log it on my phone and then we can just go back to the time videos and and actually see if anything else actually happens. It's a cool idea actually. It is really a good security feature in some respects if you can have a, a camera like that connected in case something does happen or someone does accost you, especially if it gets to the point that it needs to be a police incident. So it's a very interesting concept. Do you think that this is a uniquely British problem? I mean, are the British just rude? I don't know. I, do you know what? Ninety-nine percent of them are fantastic. Um, it's it's that one percent, but then London is huge, so that one percent is a lot of people. But a lot, but a lot of people, I think that I think when we when we encounter all these problems, it's people are running to work or they're late or, or the weather's rubbish. Um, and they've got their heads buried in their mobile phones. They've got their headphones on, so they're not looking or listening to where they're going. Um, and they're the ones bumping into us. You know, it's for before before Kika, I was the one saying sorry to everybody. You know, it's, it's sorry to people, sorry to lamppost, sorry to bin. I wouldn't know the difference. But now it's actually other people walking into us, and that that sometimes makes me angry. You know, it's it's difficult enough to navigate London and then to have other people walking into you and, be, and being rude about it as well uh, like it's our fault and you know that's not really acceptable but I think I think we've been we've we've done we've done a few other countries and we've had similar incidences in other countries with Kika although you haven't been contacted by any of the offenders as it were do you feel that you are raising awareness of this issue through what you're doing Oh, absolutely. I think a lot. I, I, so when we, Takika's Twitter account actually started the day I started my training with her because I 
was very new to guide dogs. I didn't know how they were trained or what they're capable of. So me and my wife just decided, you know, it'd be lovely to to kind of document our day-to-day training and our, our, our journeys and kind of educate people. And it just grew from there. Um, but I think the, the comments we get back, you know, the, the, just the, the way Kika handles herself, the way I handle myself in front of them, um, uh, situations. I think, I think it's good. You know, at the end of the day, I, the way I see it is I'm, I'm an ambassador for guide dogs, you know, and I'm very, very lucky to have Kika by my side, but it's great for the public to actually see how well these dogs are trained and how much I and other guide dog owners rely on them. So, you know, to, to be, to hit them or move them or push them or barge them, it's not acceptable. You know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go up to someone in a wheelchair and push them out of the way. And it's, it's very similar to us, for us. It sounds like even when there might be provocation, you try hard not to lose your egg then. I don't. It's, I, it, it ruins my day at the end of the day. You know, if I, if I get angry, it, it's kind of ruined my day right from the beginning. Um, so it's, it's easier for me to say sorry and walk away or just, you know, if, if they've got a question, I'll answer it. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want an argument. Um, and I just don't, I don't like conflict. I, I just don't want to. It sounds like you are getting on with life and you are a dad, which is just the most exciting job in the world, isn't it? It's the most amazing thing in the world. It absolutely is. I have an 18-month-old son. Um, and I, and just, you know, I, I, I walk around with him in a chest harness. So I, and then, and the lovely thing is the way when I'm, when I'm on my own with Kika, we're very, very quick. She's very confident and we get from point A to point B very quickly. But when I'm wearing the chest harness and I've got the little one in there, she slows her pace down. She makes sure she doesn't get too close to anything else. And every couple of minutes, my wife says she looks up at the chest just to make sure he's still there. Yes, um, yes. But it's 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 so amazing, and and the relationship the two of them have is incredible, because we were very very lucky that Kiko was actually in the hospital in the room with us when he was born. Um, so ever since then, uh, she she just kind of dotes on him. Yes. Oh, you're bringing back some wonderful memories for me. Cause when, when, <laughs> when my kids were little, I worked a guide dog then. I don't have one now because I was doing an awful lot of overseas travel. And in New Zealand, it's very hard to get a guide dog back in uh, because right. of all the agricultural requirements. But I did have a dog when the kids were little. And it was just wonderful, that relationship that you talk about. We did have a bit of work to do. And, and you may well have this when your son becomes a toddler because they would drop little very secretly drop little tidbits of food to try and ingratiate themselves with the dog and we're already there oh boy (laughs) (laughs) her favorite position is under the high chair at dinner time because my wife says he the the little one would look directly at me he will eat with one hand and he'll be passing food to kiki with the other Yes, yes and the two of them are just yeah they're inseparable Best of buddies, yeah, scary. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're doing some volunteering for guide dogs as well, is that right? I do. So I do. Um, I do a public speaking. Uh, we go into lots of um, communities. Um, we do brownies, cubs, scouts, um, just to introduce young children, even even elderly people, to, to guide dogs. Um, we I, I go and do a lot of their fundraising talks as well. We go into corporate events um a lot of their media stuff as well so um it's it's because i i feel so passionate it's it's guide dogs for me has changed my life completely 
it completely changed my life. You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be in a position to to even think about having a family if it wasn't for Kiki. If it wasn't that, that confidence boost, that independence, you know, having that fight to carry on again. Um, so I, I feel you know it. I don't mind going through all the heartache if it'll make someone else's life easier. It's it's all you know. It's all it's all good. It's um, but yeah, me, I'm very lucky that I have a supportive wife as well. You know, she's very much into it as well. So when when we go out, we do a fundraising event. It's the whole family. Tell me about the Twitter account and how people can follow that account if they would like to keep up with your escapades and the videos and all those fun things. So we're at it's um, at. Kika, that's K-I-K-A underscore guide dog. Really good stuff. I'm interested in hearing from you if you do a similar thing. Are you finding that you're being pushed about, jostled, insulted, generally prohibited from just going about your thing? And have you taken similar action to admit? I must admit that I'm doing it a little bit with my Apple Watch just for audio. I have an app called Just Press Record that I put on my watch face as a complication. It's a really good app, actually. You can use it on a Mac if you have one, on your iPhone, and also on your Apple Watch. And it makes it a very simple recording app, and it stores them in iCloud, which also means that if you install the iCloud for Windows app, you can get those recordings on your PC as well. And if I think that we're about to be challenged in some way, when we get into a cab with Bonnie's dog or I'm at an airport and it looks like some dodgy thing is <laughs> possibly going to happen, then it's really easy for me to just start recording from the watch. I don't get video, but I do get audio. And sometimes that's enough because sometimes you get into a situation where you have been discriminated against and the person who is the perpetrator of the discrimination just flat out denies that they ever did it. So in this day and age, where it is so easy to record, it's not always a bad thing to have the means of doing so at your disposal. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. If you're a regular listener to The Blind Side, you'll know how passionate I am about disabled people participating in institutions of influence, including the media and politics. And sadly, New Zealand has a shameful track record in this regard. While the United Kingdom is at a blind Home Secretary, David Blunkett, who featured on the blind side back in April of last year, there's never been a cabinet minister in New Zealand with a significant disability. And there hasn't been a blind MP since the 1920s. Mojo Mathers, who you will have heard on the blind side last year as part of New Zealand's election series, is profoundly deaf. And she lost her seat in Parliament in the 2017 election, and in fact was demoted to positions on the Green Party's list. Before she left, she drafted a bill, the Election Access Fund Bill, which has now been drawn in the members' ballot. The bill has been adopted by Chloe Swarbrick, elected for the first time at the 2017 election. She is the youngest MP New Zealand has elected in over 40 years. She is 23 years old. Of all the new MPs, I think it's fair to say she has had the highest profile, She's dynamic, articulate, and she's not afraid to tackle controversial issues. But just how much can she champion the disability cause? What can this particular bill achieve? And why is she interested in disability issues? To answer those questions and more, I went to Parliament to meet Chloe, and she invited me into the Green Party caucus room, somewhere I never expected to be, 
we had a wide-ranging chat. You have been a political person for a while. In interviewing, you ran for mayor of Auckland, and now you're an MP, so you knew the score. But has anything been different from what you expected? Anything surprised you? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? And I'm glad that you pick up on the fact that you can be political without being partisan. Um, You can be political without necessarily being a politician. Uh, So prior to running for the Auckland mayoralty, um, which I ran as an independent in, um, (laughs) one of the many reasons for that is that I put in my papers for the election on the very last day possible. So didn't have the time to um, put myself on a ticket or anything like that. I was previously a journalist at a little radio station called 95BFM. I was involved in business and I studied uh, law and philosophy. So uh, things about Parliament uh, that have surprised me. Uh, It's probably just the weirdness of this place. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what I necessarily expected coming into the halls of power and privilege per se, but... Um, It is a massive time warp. Uh, Most people aren't aware that, for example, Parliament sits uh, in a sitting week from 2pm till 10 o'clock at night. Uh, In the house itself, there's no artificial... It's only artificial light. There's no natural light in there. Uh, So it's it's quite a bizarre experience where time just kind of slips through your fingers. It's a much more family-friendly experience than it used to be, though, isn't it? And I noticed in your maiden speech you made comments about babies in the house and what a good (laughs) thing that was. And, you know, you go back, and this is scary, but this is long before you were born, but you you go way back to to Muldoon's time and and those all-night sessions that I used to listen to on the radio as a kid and everybody clearly inebriated and Mm. it was just horrible and clearly we've come a long way. Yeah, I do, I do think that we have. I mean, and perfectly symbolic of that is we've got, you know, the, our Prime Minister and our Minister for Women uh, both pregnant at the moment. Uh, and I think that Trevor Mallard, who's obviously the Speaker of the House at the moment, has done an, an incredible job uh, at making that happen. Those have all been his directions, you know, to allow babies into the chamber. Um, <laughs> it's 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 been quite a fascinating experience to be witnessing history in the middle of it. And that's probably another one of those things that's been quite uh, mind-boggling is to realise that you're sitting in the middle of history unfolding. Um, I had one of those kind of moments where you realise it uh, just last week uh, during Bill English's valedictory speech. Yes, yes. Dear, Trevor Mallard's got quite mellow in his dotage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has. Yeah, I can't say that. Um, you know, I I wasn't. Um, you know, particularly my interest in politics wasn't really peaked when um, Trevor himself was at his peak. Yeah. Um, but I have heard all of the stories. Now, in your maiden speech, you made a couple of really interesting comments that stood out for me, and you talked about how when you were doing interviewing on BFM, fundamentally it came down to how do you understand the issues of the constituency that you're talking to? And essentially, why should you be trusted? So in a disability context, if I can quote your own maiden speech back at you, how do you answer those questions in a disability context? What what interests you about disability and how can the disability community trust you? Yeah, so those are totally valid questions. Um, (laughs) I guess I couldn't say the opposite of something which I myself asked, but... um, 
how do I understand the issue? I understand, uh, I guess, the limits of my knowledge, which I think are really critical um, when we are talking about people's life experience. Um, I adopted this bill uh, from Mojo, um, and I have always said and will consistently say that this is Mojo's bill, um, and I'm proud to be sponsoring it because we no longer and unfortunately lost um, our only uh, MP with a disability this past election. Um, I have been doing my best to use my platform to amplify the voices of and give uh, you know, primacy to those people who do have the lived experience. I see myself as a conduit and not speaking for them, but you know, providing that space for them uh, to speak. And uh, why people with disabilities um, should trust me. Uh, I guess I would like to um, prove my worth and my value before I expect that trust. Um, but I'm going to continue putting in as much work as I possibly can uh, to prove that this isn't just good intentions. We're actually going to get some stuff done. Because I think I heard a reference that you made to disabilities in the address and reply debate, if I remember correctly. So this is obviously an issue that isn't just a passing thing for you. No, for, for me, um, you know, one of the many reasons that I'm involved in politics is because I fundamentally believe that uh, all systems are a product of the people involved. Uh, and I think that our current uh, parliamentary system, you know, our House of Representatives isn't very representative. It's not very representative on a number of fronts, uh, whether that be the, you know, ethnic makeup of Aotearoa New Zealand, whether that be, uh, you know, the proportion of society who currently lives with disabilities, whether that be youth. <laughs> uh, you know, half of New Zealand's population is under 35 and we currently only have two MPs under the age of 30. Um, yeah, I, I think that we have we have a long way to go. And this bill, um, Mojo's bill, for me is about simply generating a more robust representative democracy by ensuring that people uh, who face barriers that others simply do not um, are able to have the same equitable access to information and therefore to democracy. It's, it's basically that simple. Can you understand why the fact that you have had to champion this bill might leave a bit of a sour taste for people because here is Mojo who got bedded in fought some battles and you know some pretty fundamental accessibility battles and then she was put in a position that was actually two places down from the 2014 position she effectively did get them back because of the whole business with Kennedy Graham uh, et al but what sort of signal does it send that the Green Party who'd taken the time to get this MP inducted and used to the process put her in a position that means she's now out? I think that there are a lot of complicating variables about this past election. Um, you know, you just noted that had we received the same level of support that we got, you know, in the previous election, Mojo would still be in Parliament with us. Um, you noted that uh, she did drop back two places. Obviously, that was then made up by <laughs> the actions of a few other MPs. Uh, but I think that 
there was a massive challenge presented to the Greens with the huge number of really talented candidates um, who we fielded and also uh, the challenge around renewal and regeneration. Uh, We, I believe, in the previous election uh, had placed a number of new candidates further down the list, which meant that there was zero renewal. Um, So what we're looking at, uh, essentially, is how do you balance all of those things? How do you ensure that you get fresh blood in there? How do you ensure that you return a number of MPs in there? You know, um, arguably the reason that uh, Mojo was ranked those two places further was to make space for myself and Gorius, who are now um, new MPs. Uh, I feel very uncomfortable with that, and I'll be very honest with you in that. Uh, But at the same time, I have always felt uncomfortable with the fact that the the weight of responsibility for representing all of the disability community in this country fell on the shoulders of Mojo alone. Um, I have always felt uncomfortable with how, uh, as you, uh, I believe in this intro, mentioned, we've only really ever had two um, profoundly, uh, you know, one profoundly deaf and one um, blind MP. Um, That was 100 years ago. Um, Other parties, uh, you know, made their pot shots about how the Greens were terrible for, you know, losing um, our only disabled MP. But I would say in response to that, what work are they doing to ensure that uh, you know that they get um, disabled representation or MPs with disabilities in as well? So I think that this is fundamentally about the system um, of Parliament, and the experiences that I have listened to um, from Mojo speak to um, a system with uh, a huge number of inbuilt biases and prejudice, uh, which are actually quite deeply bedded as well in New Zealand society and culture. And hopefully uh, this bill is a step in the direction of starting to unwind those and actually also living up to uh, the obligations that we as a country signed up to in 2008 in the UN's Charter uh, on the Rights of Humans with Disabilities. I don't remember the article off the top of my head, but it speaks to... I think it's 29 of Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, Speaks to the rights um, of persons with disabilities to participate in public and political life on an equitable footing. Yeah, you know, I I still turn to Mojo, unfortunately, because this week, you may or may not know, I have had a battle over the census, which has gone quite public. Ah, yes. And um, I uh, let Mojo know about that because I knew she might be able to pull some internal strings because there's nobody, you know, in Parliament now that I felt I could turn to about that. Mm -hmm. And ironically, today I got a letter from the Acting Minister of Statistics in an inaccessible format in response to my complaint about the inaccessible census. Mm. So, you know, I mean, yeah, we, it's just a crazy that, situation. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and it's simply not good enough. And I am really sorry about your experience. And those are the experiences that we have to be um, ensuring that we're amplifying, you know, yeah. that uh, are used as the platform to make these really necessary changes. So tell me about your bill, because this establishes a fund that's designed to make it easier for people to to run for parliament, essentially. Is that right? 
Yes, uh, but it also makes it easier for voters uh, and citizens and even kids, I guess, who are growing up um, with disabilities uh, have the ability to fairly and equitably access democracy. So uh, what it does, in a nutshell, is set up a fund that is administered by the Electoral Commission, which is available to candidates, to political parties and to NGOs. Uh, to break down those barriers. So those barriers obviously come in a multiplicity of different formats because um, everybody, uh, you know, we, we recognise that different people um, face different types of barriers. Um, and uh, the, the whole purpose of it is, um, I believe, as I said before, to ensure that we end up with a more robust representative democracy at the end of it. The UK actually had a similar um, fund several years ago now, uh, which, if you extrapolate uh, per head of population from taking it from the UK to New Zealand, uh, the Electoral Commission year on year in our general election spends in excess of around $30 million. Uh, it would be an absolute drop in the bucket, about 100,000 New Zealand dollars, um, to administer something sim- similar to what um, they did in the UK, which was really successful until the Tories came in and cut it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you determine who can access this fund in terms of candidates? Because you obviously want to avoid it being a slush fund that anybody sort of suddenly develops a little disability to tap into, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think um, that's where the select committee stage is going to be really critical uh, to define, um, I guess, disability, uh, but that's where it's going to need uh, the input of the community because we want to ensure that people aren't excluded on the basis of those without lived experiences making really arbitrary boundaries. So I'm hoping that we end up with uh, something which is informed by those who will be using the fund. The other thing that occurred to me as I was looking at this bill, last year I was deeply troubled by the typical lack of media, mainstream media attention to disability issues. Um, there wasn't, you know, there, there was a debate as there should have been on a wide range of other issues, but no debate on just the whole social issues facing and economic issues facing disabled people. And because of that, I decided to try and be a solution. And on this podcast, actually out of my own pocket, I funded trips like this to Parliament and um, phone calls and things to get all the disability issue spokespeople on the podcast for extended interviews. Is that something that this fund could also facilitate? Absolutely, uh, if you were to be operating under an NGO. Um, But there is the potential too to potentially extend it. I mean, if there is... Uh, you know, independent journalists such as yourself, um, there would absolutely be the ability to change that and add it at select committee stage. So do you expect this to pass its first reading? So the indication that I've had from all of the parties and spokespeople who I have discussed this with so far is that we will have broad cross-party support at first reading. My fear is that we get it through its first reading and after you know it does that and we end up with a little bit of media attention that on talkback radio <laughs> and other uh, you know interesting um, spaces and places uh, we end up with the narrative around uh, financial responsibility um, and this attempt at valuing um, people's kinds of participation in the democratic process. So I believe to counter that really dark uh, and quite cynical um, and actually completely averse to human rights narrative, uh, we have to provide that platform, again, for uh 
people who have experienced um, the system as it currently exists and those barriers as they currently exist and articulate to our members of parliament and to the broader public through the media how important this bill is going to be. So I've been discussing it um, with a wide range of people um, I will have somebody working in my office um, who will be helping me to facilitate a strategy around it. Um, and we will be bringing a number of you know, candidates and voters with uh, disabilities to Parliament to uh, you know, discuss it firsthand with the members of Parliament who will be making this decision on their behalf. I know that the Greens have a male and a female co-leader and I don't know whether any other quotas are at play in terms of the way that the party list is determined. But is it really going to take more than this fund to crack this? Do you think there should be some sort of constitutional provision in political parties that says, look, if if one in X New Zealanders have a significant disability, then that percentage should be disabled on the party list? I believe that that's absolutely a valid discussion to be having um, and a really important discussion to be having, especially because, as you know, we currently have no MPs in Parliament um, with a visible disability. So um, I hesitate when it comes to uh, constitutional change. I don't think it's the place of anyone individual. You know, myself, I'm a massive advocate for a supreme um, codified constitution, but I don't think it's the place of myself um, nor any one political party to say this is what that constitution has to look like. But it is our place to say we really want to facilitate that discussion and have all New Zealanders participate in it as fully and freely as possible. One of the many reasons that I'm actually a massive advocate for um, the uh, Supreme Code of a Supreme Codified Constitution uh, is because of the Disability Carers case uh, and what we saw with the Supreme Court saying that it was in contravention um, of the Bill of Rights Act for the government to refuse to pay um, family carers where it was willing to pay people to come in and look after uh, family members with disabilities. Uh, and, you know, under urgency, the previous government passed legislation confirming that they would continue abusing those human rights. Um, and most New Zealanders were completely none the wiser. You're a fan of a republic too? Just uh, Personal opinion, yes. Yeah, good on you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you expect the bill to be debated? Yeah, so um, this is all about kind of the vagarities of the order paper and all the rest. But uh, the next Members' Day will come up at the at mid-March, I believe it is, uh, around the 22nd of March. Uh, I will unfortunately be in the United States at that point in time uh, on a delegation with some of the younger Members of Parliament. I'm the only one under 30, but it's under 45 is the, is the threshold uh, going over uh, to the US to represent New Zealand. So we'll be doing that. Um, so we have had from the Business Committee confirmation that we will um, be read at the next Members' Day. So it might be about a month, month and a half. Um, and that gives us quite a bit of time to um, you know, facilitate that conversation publicly. I believe generally that there's kind of two tracks for me to be able to make change in this job. The first is kind of, I spoke about this in my maiden speech as well, going behind closed doors, you know, shaking the hands and getting the promises from politicians that they'll do it. I don't know how much any of that means when they're standing on the floor and actually voting. Um, but the other track, which I think is far more democratic actually, is to go out to the public and say, 
this is your conversation, what do you want your House of Representatives to do for you? And to ensure that there are as many eyes on po- as possible, as many people paying attention to, uh, as many people listening to the korero that happens um, in the House of Representatives about it, um, so that our politicians are held accountable. Chloe Swarbrick recorded in Parliament and of course we will keep you appraised of how that bill goes when it is eventually debated in the House. That's it for The Blind Side. A reminder if you want to feedback on anything that you've heard or something different again, you can drop me an email. Theblindside at mosen.org is the email address. That's theblindside all joined together at mosen.org. You can also join our Blindside online community. To do that, send a blank email to theblindside plus subscribe at groups.io Thanks for listening to The Blind Side a production of Mosin Consulting on the web at mosin.org